Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhuku and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN official say Africa is being overlooked by humanitarian aid organizations. Kenyan Constitutional Court to hear testimonies of post-election violence survivors. And Zimbabwe bestows its highest honor on a South African-born woman. In economics, South Africa's finance minister warns arms manufacturer Denel. And in sports news, Romania to play DRC and Ukraine in Euro 2016 warm-up. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Six people have been killed in a bombing as well as clashes between security forces and militants in Libya's northwest. A suicide bomber killed a member of the security forces at a checkpoint south of Misrata, while five other people were killed at a nearby military camp southeast of Misrata. Islamic State militants have staged several attacks on checkpoints on the coastal road south of Misrata, which leads towards the group's Libyan stronghold of Sirte. Syria's negotiator Stefan de Mistura has reopened peace talks in Geneva with a call for international support to stop an increasing number of ceasefire violations in the war-torn country. His comments followed a meeting with the main opposition group, the HNC, which alleged there had been 21 massacres in the month of March alone perpetrated by the Syrian government. The UN diplomat also insists that political transition remains the key issue of the second round of talks and that it's a reality it would be addressed. Demistura says although the truce, a truce is still holding, there has been several serious incidents that threatened to derail the peace process. That's why perhaps it would be good timing for a reaffirmation by those who have been supporting and promoting the cessation of hostilities in their faith and determination in protecting it. Because at the beginning of the second round of talks, that would be a significant help. A Burundi activist group says hundreds of people have recently disappeared at the hands of police as the country reels from unrest. The group I Burundi is urging UN rights investigators to look into unofficial jails across the country where detainees are allegedly tortured and killed. The Burundian government has repeatedly denied it tortures and kills civilians. Amnesty International in January reported there were five possible mass graves on the outskirts of the capital Bujumbura, citing satellite images, video footage and witness accounts after killings in December last year that were allegedly carried out by Burundian security forces. 
South Africa's ruling ANC Secretary General Gwede Mantashe has warned that a decision to recall President Jacob Zuma would be a recipe for disaster. Mantashe was addressing the media after meeting with members of the Amatole Cadiz Forum at the University of Fort Hay in the Eastern Cape. The meeting was intended to get the views of the branches on the ruling of the Constitutional Court on Nkandla. Mantashe explains why a recall would be a bad option. And that is informed by experience that we have lived through. We recall the president was not a president of the NC. And the NC saw a splinter coming out of it. We expelled the president of the Youth League. We needed to form a party, a big body of the Youth League joined him there. All we are saying is that we should be more careful now, consider all the options. And what will happen if we take another option? And then we were basically weighing risks. That going, that going with various options that we're dealing with. Meanwhile, Deputy President of the South African Oppos- Opposition Party, the EFF, Floyd Shivambu, insists that according to the rules of the National Assembly and with regards to the Constitution, President Zuma is subject to a disciplinary process. Opposition parties have called on the Speaker of the National Assembly, Balekambete, to take action against Zuma for allegedly misleading the National Assembly following his comments on upgrades at his private home. Shivambu has stressed that action should be taken. I don't think there is anything complex with regards to the case of Mr. Jacob Zuma because he is subject to the rules of the National Assembly. So Rule 5 in the rules of the National Assembly says that the National Assembly rules are applicable to him and all members of the National Assembly of Cabinet have been found that the Constitution must be subjected a disciplinary process and that is what we had said that the speaker should do because the president is subject to that and that is based on section 15 of the constitution that says that everyone in south africa is equal before the law we expect the speaker to act on that there's nothing difficult about it that's the news headlines at 8 30 central african time africa rise and shine africa Zosa. africa amuka na unai Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Africa is being overlooked too often by humanitarian aid organizations due to the intense media focus on Syria. That's according to the UN General Assembly President Morgens Liketoft in his opening statement at a major meeting at UN headquarters in New York on the humanitarian response in Africa. Jenny Kangelosi has the story. The General Assembly met in an informal session last week to discuss the humanitarian response in Africa. Mogens Lichtoft opened the meeting with a reminder that Syria is not the only nation in need of aid. The current humanitarian and refugee crisis is truly global in nature. Yes, the Syria crisis is a major contributor to that crisis. But so too is the situation in South Sudan, Yemen, Ukraine, Somalia, Myanmar, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, Honduras, Haiti, and many more could be mentioned. 
Yes, conflict is creating humanitarian need, but so too is climate change, the El Nino effect, political persecution, natural disasters. Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Stephen O'Brien was also in attendance. He had this to say about the current food situation in Africa. Between the Horn of Africa, Southern Africa and the Sahel, almost 75 million people are currently food insecure. In the Sahel alone, nearly one in five children dies before their fifth birthday, and a third of these deaths are associated with malnutrition. The government of Ethiopia, currently facing the worst impacts of El Nino on the continent, has shown incredible fortitude and foresight through the Productive Safety Nets program and other initiatives to address chronic food insecurity linked to El Nino. The African Union was represented at the session by Erastas Mwensha, deputy chairperson of the commission. He praised the work that African governments had done for their own citizens, but urged that further measures needed to be taken. These require new ways of humanitarian action, particularly in expanding the humanitarian space to ensure access enforcement of international humanitarian law, use of innovative and technology, creating new partnership and financing, and enhanced role of local communities. The meeting was held in preparation for the World Humanitarian Summit, which takes place next month in Istanbul. Janie Kangelosi, United Nations. Now, our question to you today is, do you think Africa is being overlooked too often by humanitarian aid organizations due to the intense media focus on Syria? Send us your views and your thoughts on email at 2783-913-3000 and leave your message. Email us on info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think Africa is being overlooked too often by humanitarian aid organizations due to the intense media focus on Syria? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Denouncing sexual abuse by international peacekeeping forces is not enough. The UN must respond quickly to help the victims and help render justice. That's according to a senior UN official in charge of improving the United Nations response to sexual exploitation and abuse. The Central African Republic has a history of military coup and rebellion has been plagued by sectarian violence between two opposing groups for the past three years. Jocelyn Sambira has more. Back in February, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appointed Jane Hall Lute as a special coordinator to help curb sexual exploitation and abuse among UN troops. The most recent allegations of sex abuse received by the UN surfaced in March with new victims identified in Bambari town in the CAR. In an effort to get a first-hand feel for the challenges people face in the field, Ms. Lute met with some of the women in a displaced camp where she promised to get to the root of the problem. It's not enough for us just to denounce these acts. Um, we have to create the expectation of responsibility in every UN staff member, in every military member of a contingent, and we also have to create an environment where people can come forward 
when these behaviors have occurred, that they can levy allegations without fear, that they can get the emergency assistance that they need, and that justice we can all see, uh, mostly victims, but all of us can see that justice is done. The UN estimates that 100 victims, many of them children, suffered rape and other forms of sexual abuse at the hands of armed groups, French soldiers and UN peacekeepers from 2013 to 2015. Last year, the organization was shaken to the core when serious allegations of grievous misconduct surfaced. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon took the floor in August that year to address the Security Council to discuss what he called a cancer in the system that was doing grave harm to people the UN was meant to serve and protect. Ms. Lute said her aim was to create an environment where this type of behavior is not tolerated and when it does, to ensure the organization responds rapidly. She met with some of the peacekeepers attached to MINUSCA, the UN mission in CAR, to discuss stronger measures against sexual exploitation and abuse. The Security Council initially authorized the deployment of African and French forces to CAR in order to stabilize the country and protect civilians during the peak of sectarian violence in 2013. Here's Jane Hall Lute again. We all recognize the challenges here. This is a society and these are communities that are emerging from histories of violence, in some cases of the worst forms. The international community has been sent here to help. We have to make clear, not only with authorities, but with all of the people of the Central African Republic, what they can expect from us as international peacekeepers, as international humanitarians and aid bringers, that when we represent the UN, we represent the very best that humanity has to offer. And at the moment, these allegations reflect the worst we can imagine. So far, 120 soldiers from the Republic of the Congo who were deployed to Bambari from September to December 2015 have been repatriated following an investigation, while others have been confined to barracks. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. It's 8.14 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka Na Unai. A constitutional court in Kenya will today begin hearing witness testimonies in a case filed by survivors of sexual violence during the 2007-2008 post-election violence. Eight survivors, among them six women and two men, filed the case in 2013 seeking an apology, compensation and reparations to the victims of the atrocities committed during the violence. Sarah Kimani filed this report. Solidarity. 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 Their faces betray the pain that they have hidden for years. This, just some of Kenya's survivors of sexual and gender-based violence committed after the 2007 general elections disputed poll results were announced. Clarissa Kinney is their representative. Today, we stand in solidarity with eight survivors who were brutally gang-raped and possibly circumcised by state security officers and civilians during the post-election violence as they seek truth, justice and reparation from the state 
in a petition filed in the Constitutional Court. Close to 10 years since the violence, the wait for justice continues. The survivors want the truth about what happened to them known, and they want the, the state to acknowledge that they suffered, begin credible investigation and prosecution. Willie Sotino is the counsel for the survivors. We want the survivors to have not only their reparations in court, but more importantly, they must go through a healing process facilitated by the state, which had failed in its primary duty to protect the survivors during the PEF period. President Uhuru Kenyatta announced the 100 million U.S. dollars restorative justice fund for victims of the violence. But without proper laws to govern this fund, this and other victims risk missing out on compensation. The petition comes for hearing just days after the International Criminal Court terminated a case against Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto and his co-accused radio journalist Joshua Arapsang. It also comes just days before Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and Deputy President President William Ruto holds celebratory prayers following the termination of those cases which they have termed a nightmare not just for them but for the country. But for the victims of Kenya's post-election violence, the nightmare continues. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. South African and international companies who are legends of empowerment will be honored at the 15th annual Oliver Empowerment Awards on the 14th of April at Empress Palace in Johannesburg. This is a special year for the awards and it only seems right that this time is taken to honor those organizations who have generated real impact in the transformation space. Channel Africa will be there and will bring you a live broadcast at 1900 hours Central African time of the Minister of Science and Technology Naledi Pando, guest speaker at the 15th Annual Oliver Empowerment Awards on the 14th of April. With a geared focus on making sure the younger generation is not redundant in the job market over the coming years. Join us as we promote empowerment, development and growth of our continent's youth. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Zimbabwe has bestowed its highest honor on a South African-born woman, KwaZulu-Natal native Victoria Chitepo was buried at the country's hero shrine on Wednesday in recognition of her contribution to Zimbabwe's liberation struggle. President Mugabe told mourners that no country had suffered more loss than Zimbabwe during his struggle. Shangai Nyoka has more from Harare. Two Liberation War heroines were laid to rest at the National Heroes Acre on Wednesday. Former guerrilla trainer Vivian Mwashita and South African-born Victoria Chitepo. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe paid tribute to Chitepo, who was one of the three female ministers in Zimbabwe's first government. There is the example of my Chitepo. Very humble. She was not born here. We brought her from Zululand. Paying tribute to the 60,000 men and women who died during the liberation struggle, President Mugabe said Zimbabwe has suffered great loss. The brutal actions of the enemy. There is no country that was bombed like ours. 
and when the fighters moved to Zambia and Mozambique, Ian Smith bombed us there. There was no part of his body that was not bloody. He had the bloodiest hands of all, Ian Smith. Victoria Chitepo helped set up the ZANU Liberation Office in Tanzania. With her husband as leader of ZANU, she was destined to be the post-independent Zimbabwe's first lady. But as a result of the car bomb assassination of Herbert Chitepo in Zambia 1975, this was not to be. Mrs. Chitepo remained skeptical of the official version that her husband was killed by Ian Smith's agent. She believed her husband's killers were among those she sat with in the Politburo and that Herbert Chitepo was possibly the victim of an internal power struggle. The truth has eluded her even to her grave at 89 years of age. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Tensions continue to simmer within South Africa's ruling ANC over whether President Jacob Zuma should step down or not. The party's national leadership has been consistent of the need for Zuma to continue to lead with while structures in Gauteng and some stalwarts want him out. Calls have been mounting within and outside the ANC for the president to step down after the Constitutional Court found that he violated the Constitution by failing to comply with the remedial actions of public protector Tulima Tonsela in relation to the Ngandla matter. Amos Pajo has more. First, it was ANC stalwart Ahmed Katrada who wrote an open letter to President Zuma asking him to step down following the damning constitutional court judgment. Other senior party members such as Trevor Manuel, Cheryl Carolas and Mavusom Simang then joined in on calls for Zuma to step down. While the SACP objected Zuma's recalling, it called on the ANC to see the judgment as a clear warning signal to take decisive action. Then some religious leaders also weighed in and calling on President Zuma to leave while others accepted his apology and want him to finish his term. On Tuesday, the ANC in Gauteng called on Zuma to do the right thing. It's this statement that propelled the youth, women and veterans leagues as well as the MKMVA in Gauteng to jointly declare their support for Zuma. Provincial Youth League Chairperson Matume Chilwane. The dirty hand of the West is fiddling in our country and is using the opposition as their instruments to create chaos. The DA and EFF and the spokesperson of white monopoly capital, Rupert, are all in bed together, caressed in the arms of the West to bring about regime change. For those who are impatient with the term of President Zuma, with the term, the, the term of President Zuma is coming to an end soon. A new democratically elected leadership will be in office. So we must not make it a trend of removing president. No play into removal through a coup. The opposition does not need our help on their dirty agenda. Another church organization has come out in support of President Zuma. Reverend James Fatuse of the International African Ministers Association of South Africa has lashed out at religious leaders critical of President Zuma. If they believe President Zuma is not fit to lead the country, were they implying that on their capacity as bishops are calling for regime change? Idamasa is saying these bishops... They promote chaos that will lead the nation to nation destruction. They are called spells poison to the nation because it will lead to anarchy and people will be free to do as they wish. Are they for justice and peace as men of the cloth or have hidden agenda that other church leaders does not know? 
Meanwhile, ANC Secretary General Gwere Mantasha says a decision to recall President Jacob Zuma will be a recipe for disaster. Mantasha was addressing the media after meeting with members of the Amato Lakeda's Forum at the University of Fort Hare at Alice in the Eastern Cape. The meeting was intended to get the views of branches on the ruling of the Constitutional Court on Nkandla. Mantasha explains. And that is informed by experience that we have lived through. We recall the president was not the president of the ANC. And the NC saw a splendor coming out of it. We expelled the president of the Youth League. We needed to form a party, a big body of the Youth League joined him there. All we are saying is that we should be more careful now, consider all the options, and what will happen if we take another option. And they were basically weighing risks that go, that going with various options that we are dealing with. Public protector Tulima Tonsela did not escape the wrath of the ANC Women's League. The league says it remains critical of her person and called her a populist but says it respects her office. Public protector spokesperson Obasigalu says the league has their facts wrong. What we are involved in as the public protector South Africa is uh, an investigation uh, into whether or not it is true that President Mandela's government commissioned an investigation by a British firm called the CIX uh, into alleged siphoning of public funds under the apartheid government and whether or not he and the Reserve Bank's governor at the time acted properly in allegedly failing to recover the funds, which funds they had allegedly been advised in the CIX report that are recoverable. The league also took a swipe at former President Thabo Mbegi, Trevor Manuel and his wife Maria Ramos for Butley's takeover of APSA, saying Butley's had funded the apartheid military. It also insists that President Mbegi is the one who introduced the Gupta family to President Zuma and that the attack on the family remains a misery as families and institutions like the Oppenheimers, Rupert's and Butley's have gained state resources. But the Tawo Mbegi Foundation has since released a statement denying that Mbegi ever introduced Zuma to the Guptas. I'm Amos Pao in Johannesburg. South Africa is in dire need of, a lead, of leadership with a new vision for a good society, a society with shared values of citizenship. This was the message conveyed by the South African Local Government Association, SALGA, and the Moral Regeneration Movement at the signing event of the Charter of Election Ethics that took place at Constitutional Hill in Johannesburg. It saw all the political parties contesting the upcoming local elections in August commit to ethical and responsible campaigning. The Charter provides guidelines for good conduct to ensure a peaceful, non-violent environment for the poll. Busi Chimombe, Valdez Report. The pledge reads as thus. We, the undersigned organizations, are a signatory to the Charter of Election Ethics and commit to promote, support, implement, and comply to the Charter. The full complement of political parties, said the Freedom Front Plus that gave its apologies, was present at the signing of the Charter of Election Ethics at the Women's Jail at Constitutional Hill. The Charter is a result of a number of engagements amongst the parties, supported by the South African Local Government Association, SALGA, Moral Regeneration Movement, MRM, and the Independent Electoral Commission. MRM Chairperson, Father Smangali Somkachwa, 
says that the growing intra- and interpolitical party violence over successive elections, as well as the use of money to exert undue influence over campaign and electoral processes, are amongst the motives for drawing up the Charter. People must be informed how to vote, which is purely a technical exercise, but over and above that, they need to be guided by certain values to ensure that people uh, actually exercise their freedom that they, uh, they don't feel that they are being coerced to vote in a, a particular way, that there is transparency in the way in which the electoral process is, is conducted. There is honesty among those who are responsible for, the, uh, uh, for running the, 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 the process. While the Charter speaks to the role of other stakeholders, such as the voters, the IEC, media and community organization, it does place a great deal of responsibility for the observance of free and fair elections and political parties and the processes they follow. Keynote speaker at the ceremony, KwaZulu-Natal Professor Paulus Zulu. The Charter carries messages to all role players in the elections and calls for integrity, objectivity, honesty, transparency and service to society that political parties before accepting and nominating or choosing candidates go through this scanning process are you worthy the salt do you deserve to be in leadership or you're just going there for a career political parties while making their pledge to the charter use the opportunity to ventilate their issues relating to the conduct of other parties and the iec in past polls the IFP's representative. ANC aligned South African Democratic Teachers Union, officials being placed in charge of voting stations, which contradicts the Charter's injunction that all electoral staff be politically neutral. It includes the issue of government uh, departments rebranding to adopt the ANC colors on posters across KwaZulu Natal, for instance which contradicts the Charter's injunction that taxpayers' money never be used to fund the election campaigns of political parties. The economic freedom fighters could not resist taking a swipe at the ruling party. Party Chief Whip, Goodrich Gardi. There is a culture of impunity amongst political parties in their conduct of elections campaign, primarily because there are absolutely no consequences for such conduct. Evident to this, there is no consequences for the breach of oath of office by the President, the National Assembly and the ruling party. We are actually not surprised that the top six leadership, neither of them of the ruling party is here to commit themselves. The IEC will be holding another event mid-May to get political parties to sign up to their code of conduct, also a guide on the values that should inform their actions. And that report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with that, Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, six people have been killed in a bombing as well as clashes between security forces and militants in Libya's northwest. 
A campaign has been launched to press for more support for the 276 Nigerian girls kidnapped by Boko Haram two years ago when they do return home. And Syria's negotiator Stefan Demestura has reopened peace talks in Geneva with a call for international support to stop an increasing number of ceasefire violations in the war-torn country. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And Somalia continues to suffer the consequences of the ongoing conflict. And lately, the only new weather phenomenon, the Horn of African Nation, ranks extremely low across a range of human development indicators. And in addition, more than one million people remain displaced internally, while tens of thousands of Somalis are refugees in neighboring countries due to conflict and insecurity. The International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, is one of Somalia's largest providers of emergency aid and calls for continued global support for the country in crisis. Elaborating more on the situation is ICRC Head of Delegation for Somalia, Jody Reich. We are facing a country where um, the, the little infrastructure that existed before the war has been destroyed or abandoned. It has out of a population of barely 11 million, half a million died, uh, and there are a million refugees and over a million displaced. And the people that are left in the country, 80% are nomadics, and they have basically no access to the most basic facilities, be it water, because the existing wells that were there before have been destroyed or contaminated, or the water pumps not properly kept, no access to medical facilities because the little hospitals or clinics uh, have been looted or burned or destroyed or are not operating. And it's a population that is basically left on their own trying to survive in those difficult conditions. The ICRC has been operating in Somalia for decades. Just give us an update on what the organization is focusing on in response. We focus on two main issues. We, Of course, all our work turns around protection and assistance. Assistance meaning delivering of food, non-food, aid, seats, tools, and protection, uh, meaning visiting the prisons to assess the conditions of detainees and talking to the parties at conflict, both government or international like AMISOM, the African Union Mission, or Al-Shabaab, the group that is fighting against them, for them calling for the respect of civilians. Our activities in the country are very big. The ICRC has 80 missions or delegations worldwide, and Somalia remains, after all these years, the fifth largest in terms of budget and setup, and focus go in, in two ways, if you like. One is assuring the mid-term, the livelihood, the resilience, the capacity of the population to survive in those conditions through programs on agriculture, on cattle, veterinary, wells, water, and training. And on the other, on responding to emergencies, because we have both ways in Somalia, this long-term conflict that destroyed and made difficult life uh, because of 25 years of conflict, or emergencies because of climatic conditions as well. Somalia is still very badly affected by chronic floods or drought that get worse in years like this one where we have the phenomenon called El Nino or La Nina and, and 
that they exacerbate those, those situations. How difficult is it for the ICRC to respond to the humanitarian situation in Somalia effectively? I mean, you speak of two dimensions to the humanitarian situation, one that is arising from the ongoing conflict and secondly from emergencies such as climate change. That's a very good question because, I mean, our main challenge is in Somalia to respond effectively. The key ones are security and access that go hand in hand. Somalia remains an extremely volatile environment. To give you an example, I mean, we ICRC, uh, we are still using armed guards, something that we don't do anywhere else in the world. And this reflects the volatility and the difficulty of the conflict. So the main hurdle we have when in trying to respond to those needs is to gain safe access to the areas. In most cases, we manage, but this is through dialogue. If the area is, of course, under the control of the government forces, we discuss with the government authorities, and then we normally have access without a problem. If the area is under the control of al-Shabaab, well, then we also need to reach out to the people of al-Shabaab and negotiate with them safe access so our teams can go there and and access the population. Once you have secured this access, and again, that's the first big hurdle and not an easy one at all, then the second problem is mostly one of logistics. It's a country without infrastructure. Then you have to move a lot with uh, trucks, but it's difficult to find trucks ready to go into certain areas because of insecurity. So then you switch into planes, but planes are extremely expensive cargo planes, and not all planes want to fly. So then it becomes more a question of logistics on how to reach to reach that population. All in all, it's a, it's a very good question because it's really one of the most difficult places on earth to deliver assistance to the people. Lastly, is Somalia still receiving the international attention it deserves? One thing that we've noticed as a humanitarian organization really is that funding for us and many other organizations for humanitarian activities from the international community is decreasing. Over the years, we see more and more humanitarian organizations pulling out of Somalia and abandoning their projects halfway because of lack of funding. Uh, fundings, and we ourselves suffer a bit of the same. We are still there, we're still working, but increasingly every year it's increasingly difficult to get the funding we need to operate there. And that was Jody Wright, head of delegation for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Somalia, speaking to Jane Rabutata. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa believes that next Secretary General of the United Nations should be a good negotiator who is competent on the issues of affecting Africa issues affecting Africa and able to bridge the divide between the North and South. So says the country's deputy permanent representative to the world body as the General Assembly enters day three of its informal dialogues with nine declared candidates seeking to replace Bangi Moon. This is the first time in the history of the organization that candidates have been able to present themselves in an open forum before all member states. Sean Bryce Peace has more. I 
call to order this meeting of the informal dialogues with candidates for the position of United Nations Secretary General. Riveting is not the word, as candidates and member states alike labor through a dialogue that could sway who becomes United Nations Secretary General designate. I myself have participated in discussions about reform of the Security Council since the beginning in 1992. And Candidate and former Slovenian President Danilo Turk attempting to add a fresh perspective to a decades-old debate, part of a grueling two-hour interview process in front of all 193 member states, many asking batches of questions covering a cross-section of UN policy, challenges, failings and dreams. In a way, they can kind of influence. South Africa's Deputy Permanent Representative, Matlati Minele, calls the process unique, more for its transparency than its viewing or listening pleasure. For the very first time, member states are able to say, these are the candidates, this is what they are saying, and in a way, they can kind of influence the outcome of this process because at the end of the day, although it is the Security Council that will recommend to the General Assembly and the General Assembly appoints, at least the General Assembly would have participated in this exercise for the very first time in 70 years. Questions have currency. How do you envisage dealing with the financing of peace support operations deployed by Africa? Others, as complex as the job would suggest. How do you see the role of the SG in bringing justice to victims of atrocity crimes and what kind of and in this context answers that no one can disagree with but that lack the specificity that each unique crisis would require i have read many different reports and candidate and former croatian foreign minister vesna pusic the most important job of the secretary general is to make the uh, organization work. And, in and with so many countries at the UN, candidates are appealing to different interests in the room, as South Africa's Mahlati Minela explains. The kind of personal traits that we're looking for, it's someone who's quite conversant with the issues around the UN, someone who can um, be the bridge uh, between the South and the North, someone who can um, be a good advocate of the issues of the developing countries, uh, someone who will be able to at least be able to present the case for Africa in an environment where they are uh, uh, competing uh, uh, priorities within the United Nations. While it's the Security Council that will finally recommend a candidate to the General Assembly to vote on, this process at the very least allows member states to get their feet wet before fully jumping in. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Bees in New York. A three-year-old child born to a South African woman imprisoned in Mozambique for drug-related crimes has been repatriated to South Africa. This child, accompanied by social workers from the Department of Social Development, arrived at the Oratambo International Airport. According to the department, the child's mother wrote to the department requesting that the child be repatriated to South Africa for placement in foster care with his extended family. Sashin Naidu reports. 
A team from the Department of Social Development has safely returned to South Africa with the little boy who was born in a Mozambican prison three years and six months ago. It is understood that his mother was attempting to traffic drugs into Mozambique when she was arrested at a local airport. The Mozambican government does not allow children born to imprisoned mothers to stay in prison and requires them to be released immediately after birth, making this repatriation an urgent matter. Spokesperson for the Department of Social Development, Connie Kumalo says the child will now live with his extended family from the Free State. The child is going, uh, as you see today, the foster parents are here. Uh, they're going to receive the child and take him to Free State where they are staying. They are going to look after the, the, the child. Social workers will be supporting. There's an allocated social worker who is uh, responsible for the case. is also here. She's going to go with them and make sure that uh, she provides the necessary support to both the foster parent and the child because the child is not familiar with the environment. The foster family are already providing care to the imprisoned woman's 15-year-old brother for whom they receive government support through the child support grant. Kumalo says the family is extremely excited at the little boy's return. They're very emotional, and but they are very excited and happy that they're finally receiving the child. They were even phoning family back home to say we're finally having the child with us, but we're going to come home tomorrow because it's too late now. We have booked them accommodation so that they can rest. Then tomorrow they can hit the road uh, to Free State. Umalo says the little boy's mother has many more years to serve in prison. I understand she has been sentenced for 12 years. I think by now she has, and that was in 2011 already. I think maybe she's only third year, fourth year of sentence, but we don't know how the laws in Mozambique are working in terms of parole, in terms of the sentence, you know, in terms of whether she has to finish the sentence. Because once you leave the borders of South Africa, you cease to have rights of South Africa. So they will handle that in terms of the Mozambican laws and legislation. She says the Department of Social Development has made an urgent call for an end to drug trafficking. We're saying as social development there are alternatives. You know, uh, being a drug mule doesn't pay because we see a lot of these cases. We're saying if really you are struggling, come forward to social development. We have got a lot of poverty alleviation interventions which we can really take you along and assist you so that you go to school, you have your own career and get your own job and, and, and work for yourself. Between 2008 and 2015, 18 South African children in distress have been repatriated from foreign countries. I'm Sasha Naidu in Johannesburg. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Gordon, has warned that arms manufacturer, Dinal, will be guilty of financial misconduct if it pushes ahead with the joint venture with a company linked to the Gupta family. Gordon's warning is an indication to reassert control over state-owned enterprises. Top banks and some audit firms recently cut ties with the holding company for the Gupta family's businesses, Oak Bay Investments. The Botswana Investment and Trade Center and the German African Business Association Africa Verein have renewed the 10-year-old Memorandum of Understanding during an inward investment and trade promotion. According to Christopher Cannon-Gerber, uh, 
Both countries worked on the MOU to align it to support each other. He says they will be inviting companies from Botswana to come to Germany to participate in trade activities in the country, as well as foster some relationships. Melly Meal, Zambia shortages are being experienced a lot in most parts of that country. Civil Society for Poverty Reduction says the ban on the exportation of maize by government was out of panic. CSPR, however, says although the ban on the exportation of maize was a positive move to respond to the escalating hunger and skyrocketing mealy meal prices, enforcing it now serves a too little purpose, as it has come too late when much of the grain had already exited the country. Meanwhile, Zambia's parliament has debated the amended Mines Bill, which proposes to reduce copper royalties to a variable a tax of between 4 to 6%, depending on the price of the metal. The Mines and Minerals Development Bill also proposes to reduce mineral royalties for other base metals to 5% for both underground and open cast operations. The royalty would be 4% when the price of copper is below 4,500 US dollars a ton. The value of coffee sold through Kenya's auction has dropped 9%. To 85 million US dollars in the half to March due to lower volumes and prices. Kenya sold coffee worth 93.2 million dollars in the first half of 2014 15 crop season that runs from October to September. Kenya's coffee prices track record those of Arabica in New York, the United States of America. The US dollar trades at 14.65 in South Africa, 10.70 in Botswana, 9.50 in Zambia, 7.0 British pound, 8.8 euro, gold $1,233, platinum $92 an ounce, brand crude $43, 51 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Nokoko. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news, where the Romanian Football Federation says their national team will play friendlies against the Democratic Republic of Congo and Ukraine in Italy in the build-up to this year's European Championship in France. The Romanians, who will stage a training camp in Italy between the 18th of May until the 30th, will face DR Congo on the 25th of May in St. Vincent and Ukraine in Turin four days later. They have also scheduled a friendly against Georgia on the 3rd of June. Romania take on host France in the opening of Euro 2016 match on the 10th of June in Paris. Switzerland and Albania are the other teams in Group A. And athletes who tested positive for meldonium before the 1st of March could have bans overturned less than four months before the Rio de Janeiro Olympics after WADA said it was unable to establish how quickly the drug outlawed since January the 1st cleared the human body. The World Anti-Doping Agency's notice to national anti-doping bodies is expected to have a major impact 
on many of the 172 athletes who have tested positive for the performance-boosting drug since January. They include five-times Grand Slam tennis champion Maria Sharapova, who was among 40 Russian athletes to test positive for the drug after it was added to WADA's list of banned substances in January. Sharapova's lawyer, John Haggerty, says WADA handled the issue poorly and is now trying to make up for it. WADA says there is a lack of clear scientific information on excretion times. In swimming news, Karin Prinsloo is in danger of not qualifying for the Rio Olympics in Brazil after she failed to post a qualification time on the fourth day of the South African National Aquatic Championship and Olympic Trials at the Kings Park Aquatic Center in Durban last night. Prinsley only managed to post 1 minute 59.86 seconds in the women's 200 meters freestyle final, failing to dip under the required Olympic time of 1 minute 58.96. The veteran was part of the Olympic team at the 2012 London Games, where she took part in two individual events. Prince Lu was emotional and tearful after she failed to qualify. Yeah, I'm very, very disappointed and sad, um, especially because my PB, my personal best time, is so much better than um, the qualifying time. So, yeah, I'm really having a tough time to just think that in two years' time everything went wrong and, yeah, my time already slow now, so yeah, it was, it's hard to, to swallow. Yes, the turnover I think was my, my biggest one. My, my PB was way under qualifying time, so it was the only one I knew um, I could go really, um, I can really, if I, even if I'm at my worst, I can probably still make it. So it's really tough for me because I don't think if I don't make it in the tournament freestyle, I probably won't make it in any other event. So yeah, it's really tough. Despite not qualifying, Prince Lu did manage to win gold medal after dominating her opponents from start to finish. Christine Bellingen claimed silver while Jessica Willen won the bronze medal. There is a slight opportunity for Prince Lu to still make it in the global showpiece in the freestyle event. But she's not raising her hopes high. Um, I'm swimming the 100 free tomorrow, but even when I was at my best, my 100 free time didn't make the qualifying time. So I'm um, not saying that it won't be done, but it's going to take a lot to be done. And in rugby news, Cheetah's coach Franco Smith says he's had sleepless nights on which players to select in his team. This is because several of his players, including Flanker, Veli Brett and Gerard Olifir, will soon be returning from injuries. Smith says he's happy. Obam Hoje is back. Now, Obam Hoje's uh, return is going to help us a lot, you know, in the mentality, his, the mentality that he brings is exceptional. Other uh, loose forwards, you know, that, that helps us a little bit with the depth that will recover soon. Players like Neil Jordan, uh, Willy Britz and Gerard uh, uh, Olivier will also be available for selection soon. So that our depth definitely has, is getting uh, better. And and finally, Sergio Garcia is the host at the European Tour, has its first event in Europe for the season. Nick Dyer reports. A winner at the course in 2011, Garcia also boasts a sequence of top 10 finishes at a course the defending champion James Morrison calls the Spanish Augusta. It is another tough test, but one that the host will relish, and the same goes for others who've moved on from the Masters. Martin Keimer had intended to stay for another week in the States until it was announced that Valderrama would be the venue. He's finished second here at the season-ending Volvo Masters. Soren Kelsen returns as a former champion. The former Ryder Cup venue is in pristine condition and it promises a wonderfully competitive week in the Spanish sunshine. That's your Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN officials says Africa is being overlooked by humanitarian aid organizations. Kenyan Constitutional Court to hear testimonies of post-election violence survivors and Zimbabwe bestows its highest honor on a South African-born woman. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Jane Matebula, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31... Meter band to Southern Africa is Kanda Bongoman with a song titled Miser. Like, like, like.